I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slow Burn. It's called Proposition 6. The Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian schoolteacher in California. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Chances are, if you're a certain age, the first time you saw the name James L. Brooks, it was all in caps. It was in a yellow font, and it was in the clouds. Here's the thing. If all James L. Brooks had done in his life was produce The Simpsons... That would be more than enough to cement the legacy. That would be more than enough to go down in history as one of the most important TV producers of all time. But I mean, by that point, he had already done Mary Tyler Moore, Taxi, Rhoda. I mean, these were shows that changed the face of TV because I think up to that point, there were dramas and there were comedies. But all of a sudden, James creates these shows that were very, very funny, but had a lot of heart at the core of them. And then he turns around and applies that same thing to film. I mean, maybe you remember Broadcast News or Terms of Endearment. I don't know what it is about you, but you do bring out the devil in me. Basically, if you throw dust on the history of film and television, you're going to find the fingerprints of James L. Brooks everywhere. And he's in his 80s. He's still writing and producing. His latest film is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And when I caught up with him, he was still working hard at work on another project. I asked him, after decades in this business, after all of his success, if he ever considers slowing down? I mean, the guy has multiple Oscars. He doesn't need to be location scouting and hanging out in writer's rooms. Let me tell you, over Zoom, the look this man gave me was cutting. (laughs) Give me a break. Sort of a give me a break look. I'm doing work that I care about, and that feels good, and it's... uh, I always think when it's based on writing, you know, there's the one thing you can't question at three o'clock in the morning is there's something good about about an empty page getting filled by whatever you can do with it. I want to go back to the very beginning when you first started filling those empty pages. Um, the way you got into film and TV when I was doing my research for this is, is kind of surprising because, you, you know, as opposed to a lot of people today, you don't have parents in the business. You didn't go get an MFA or anything like that. How did you how did you get your start in this business? Well, I did catch a break, and the break was I've been brought out from California from a job I love, news writing in New York, and it was also a secure job, giving me a, a decent living, which was more than I ever imagined. And then I, I took the leap to come to California to do documentaries for a place called Walpa Productions, and about six, seven weeks after I got there, they laid me off. And I had nothing but the, the moving money they had given me, which ran out pretty quickly. And somewhere in there, there was a very bleak New Year's Eve where some of my old documentary friends got together for a party. And into that party of sort of grubby guys uh, walked this golden couple in a tuxedo who was who was the friend of the host. And it turned out to be Alan Burns. And I and he said, what, what, what do you do? I said, well, I'm, I'm open to, you know, the riot. I, you know, I just it was it was it was tough to get out of my mouth. 
he had five shows on the air at the time and he got me my first job just not knowing anything just bumping into me and we later became partners and we did Lou Grant together Mary Tyler Moore show together and wrote it together but before that weren't you a page too for for CBS I was a page at CBS yeah in New York and, and, and from a page, I went to basically a copy boy at CBS News. They called him desk assistants. So you knew you wanted to work in, in TV. You knew you wanted to work in show business in some way. To tell you the honest truth, I was without any ambition except surviving. I, I mean, that's the truth. There was no room for ambition. I mean, things were, you know, that way. So it wasn't necessary. You weren't necessarily driven by this, like, great desire to, to tell stories or to tell jokes. I had always loved reading plays. Right. I tried writing a play that led nowhere, you know. Yeah. And I had gotten a letter of encouragement from a magazine when I sent in a short story, which was the highlight of my life. I mean, that they'd written a personal letter, not a form, not a form rejection. So writing, writing is what you wanted to do. But never imagined I could do it as a profession. I mean, look, look what ends up happening. As you mentioned, in the 70s, you, you start developing these classic sitcoms, Taxi... They told me I'd be starting work today as a driver. Oh, here's my hack line. You're a cab driver? Uh-huh. What do you mean busting my chops here? Make them believe you're a regular person. The Mary Tyler Moore show. show. Um, what's the job? The job is that of associate producer. Associate? Something wrong? No, 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 I like it. The job pays $10 less a week than the secretarial job. <laughs> um, this a little bit but before my time, Jim... What, what was that era of television like? It seems like such an exciting time. It feels like it seems like everybody in America was was watching these shows, these big network shows then. You almost can't imagine it now because the numbers were like 20, 30 million people watching. It was like crazy. And All in the Family was just this record shattering show in, in so many respects. And that started out as Saturday night. And we were very lucky because there was a guy who took over as president of CBS. They had most of the top 20 shows, top 30 shows, and there were all these bucolic shows like Beverly Hillbillies. And they were all sort of along those lines where, you know, with a funny premise that they just drove home. And they were all hit shows and doing well. And he came along and he took them off the air in great success. Nobody's done it before. Nobody's done it afterwards. And he put All in the Family on. He put us on. He put the Bob Newhart show on, followed by Carol Burnett. And that was a Saturday night. And it was a Saturday night, which is sort of a morgue now when you, when you do have a show on a Saturday night, except for Saturday Night Live. And, and that became almost people stayed home for that evening of television. Keep on looking at us. Keep on smiling with us. Don't you forget to keep on coming by. If you want to see the best, you'll keep your eyes on CBS. Cause CBS is easy. How did it feel on the lot? To me, it's this sort of like, I think about it in the same way I think about like Greenwich Village folk scene in the 60s, where I think about like Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez having coffee. When I think about the 70s for TV, the era you're in, I'm imagining like Danny DeVito and Andy Kaufman, you know, and just everyone just kind of hanging out on the lot, lot together. What did, what did the lot feel like? That was true for Taxi. It was that dream coming through times 10 because we had everything. You know, people were seeing our shows. And Happy Days was on. But television was still ghettoized. I mean, you couldn't get a job in movies if you worked on television. You couldn't get, you, you'd get the word tail out of your mouth and they wouldn't hire you. 
You know, it was, it was that, that big a wall between the two. Divided geographically on the lot, too. So it was great because our shows were being done. We were being paid to do the work we loved. And we got to be the underdogs because movies were the higher ups and we were yuddy, yuddy, yuddy against the other side of the lot. What was Andy like when he wasn't on screen? Did you ever get to see the real version of him? Not often. What would happen is, you know, we did our show for an audience and we had a dress rehearsal and he'd be totally in character and totally in character all the time, all the time. And uh, he'd never break it. But when you had a note for him, you'd go over and you'd give it to him. And Andy, would, I got the note, but he would still be doing, you know, Foreign Man as his character. And, and it was great. I remember, I remember the night we saw him in a nightclub for the first time. Did you, did you ever seen the, the, that act where he was the foreign man? Yeah. And he also did his great Presley impression. You know, Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley once said that of all of the Elvis imitators, the one that he enjoyed the most is our guest, Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman. If you don't want to agree to be right, I'll you at the book and kiss him here once. Use a red light. So, so he comes out as an act that kills his far man, then does his crazy Presley impression, then comes back where you couldn't recognize his face as a third-rate comic that offends the audience until they're screaming at him to get off the stage because somewhere in there, he was inventing a new art form of doing that. And one night when he was doing that guy, I'm trying to remember the character he played, and we're, we're, we have pretty good seats and we're seeing him and we're, we're saying, you know, loathsome guy. His manager leans over and says in my ear, that's Andy. I've never claimed to be able to tell a joke. I've never been able to tell a joke. I have never, what? If you want to heckle me, you win, because I have no comebacks. I have nothing witty to say. I never claim to be clever or talented or witty. So, <laughs> thank you for showing me where I'm at. I love the idea that you see this strange experimental comic who is alienating half the audience, and you think to yourself, I'm going to cast him in a big network sitcom. Well, I felt lucky. I felt lucky we got it. <laughs> Um, speaking of taking risks, uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show is revolutionary, too, for featuring a single career woman uh, at the time it came out. I heard that when you first pitched the show to CBS, it didn't go well. Can you tell me that story? Mary had come to myself and, and Alan Burns, and they came to the two of us. Her, her husband, Grant Taker, is one of the best men anybody ever worked for. Uh, he was sort of a, a golden man. He later became chairman of NBC, but he was just he just fought for writers. He was an executive who fought for writers. But I mean, did not fought for him, put everything he had on the line to support us. I mean, you know, went past those stops where they said, don't go further, Grant. He went past those stops for the writers. He built a great company that produced great work because he did that. It's sort of, it's sort of neat. So uh, he brings us into the first network meeting. And, <laughs> and they, they heard our pitch and they asked us to leave the room to talk to Grant. And then Grant came out and said, everything's... And Mary had an on-the-air commitment from them, you know, a firm on-the-air commitment from them. And we were nobodies. And we went out and we, we ended up doing our show, not the show we pitched them that day, but doing the show that you're familiar with. And it was years later that we found out that he was ordered to fire us in the room and he just didn't do it. Why? Why, why was he ordered to fire you? And <laughs> I swear to God, this, this happened. The head of programming, the man anointed as a genius, said there are three, three things that you can't do. 
divorced women. And our, our pitch to them that day was, was that Mary was divorced. We later changed it so that she was on the rebound from an engagement that didn't work. Divorced women, Jews, and men with mustaches. The three things that he said this in a meeting with like 20 executives in a semicircle looking at us. He's looking at my face <laughs> saying Jews. <laughs> I wasn't expecting men with mustaches to be at the end of that yes, either. I didn't, yes, I didn't yes. know they were so toxic for yes. TV. <laughs> so did did you know that <laughs> did did you know that by having her be this again like single career woman that what you were doing was was sort of revolutionary on TV? No, certainly, you know, certainly not. Anybody who's self conscious to think doing something about revolutionary, I don't know. That's that's I, I can't imagine it. We were we were very lucky in our timing in feminism coming to a crucial point for itself just at the time we did the show. So it's just one of those breaks that the timing was perfect. Let me get this straight. Uh, mm-hmm. The only reason he was paid more than I am is because he was a man? Oh, sure. It has nothing to do with your work. <laughs> wait, no, no, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, because I, cause I really, I, I want to understand this. Uh, I'm doing as good a job as he did. Better. Better. <laughs> and I'm being paid less than he was because... You're a woman. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that there was this sort of like wall on the lot between film and, and TV. If you look at it right now, you have all these great filmmakers clamoring to work on TV. They're bringing in, you know, some of the people who would be working, I can see you nodding, like people who would be working in film yeah. are now desperate to get on TV. People can't imagine the truth of what I said. What, what I said the case was then. And that was the case then. I think Ron Howard was the first person to make it over the wall. So when you tried to make that leap, it was kind of unheard of at the time, as opposed to, uh, with, with the exception of people like Ron Howard. I didn't do my first picture until about five years later. So it was, it was lessening a little. Ron Howard was the first one. There were some trailblazers. And about five years later, I, I got to do my first film. Did it feel like a risk to be doing your, to, to be crossing over from TV to film? No, it was just... But I had done a full-length script. It was called Starting Over. And people liked the script, so I was able to, you know, I, I never thought of directing myself, but I was able to, to say to directors, I'd like you to do this, and think of who I most wanted to say it to. And it was Alan Bakula, and that was my first movie, and he allowed me to produce it. When I go out that door, what are you going to do? You're just going to stand here and start crying while I'm I drive around the block trying to figure out a way to get back you leave? You're not? No. I'll probably work on my song. He barred me from the set the third day there, and I don't blame him at all. And he said a great thing, and it's a true story, because when you write a script, you see a movie. That's the experience. And I'd be on the set, and uh, the actors would be doing something, and I'd, I'd, I'd be registering with my face whether, whether I thought it was right or not. And of course he had to bar me from the set. He said this great thing, when you're directing... You don't need to know everything, but sometimes you need the illusion that you do. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that was it. But I still was, you know, it was, I was just passionate about it. You know, I would speak to the actors at night. He was great in allowing me to have a, a, ro- a real role in editing the film, you know, for a six-month period where it found its way. Uh, so I'm very grateful to him. I mean, it's amazing what ends up happening. I mean, in 1983, your film, Terms of Endearment, wins five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. The winner is James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment. 
What changes when, when that happens? What, what changes when you get that kind of recognition? Well, I, I knew right away that one solid thing it meant that I'd get to make my next movie. Right. That the next, that the next script I wrote would get made. And that's a great feeling. I mean, that's, you know, and you walk around with that and, and, and it just, it's like purifying a nicotine filled room or something. <laughs> does it, does it give you more freedom as an artist, as a creator? Yes. Yes. I mean, I mean, I think if you have that ticket, you should really spend it well. You should really do something you care about. You really, really do something that means something to you. And and you walk around and you look for the next thing you're going to do. And, you, and you're able to say to yourself, hey, I'm probably going to get this night as a movie. Yeah. What do you remember about that night at the Oscars? Oh, uh, for, for terms? Yeah. I remember that... I think I got the writing Oscar first and I brought it back and, you know, you sit in your chair and you put it on the floor and and there's an Oscar down there and it's yours. (laughs) And I was blissful. And then they call my name again and I go up there and I'm, and I, it's an odd moment and I, I don't know what I did. And I come back and now there are two Oscars on the floor. And 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 then they called me again for for best picture, and I I got up there and I was stupefied. I was my, my mind was my mind was blown, and I remember all I was doing was dusting the lectern. I was just moving those ashes, not knowing what I was saying. There was stuff on there, and I just you know didn't know what I was saying. And that was the evening. It took a long time to get the picture made. There was a lot about, you know, every studio turning it down. I, I think it's much more significant that a Hollywood studio made it. There's no way to express the gratitude. Thank you very much. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the legendary producer and writer James L. Brooks. We've been talking about his career in film and TV. I mean, developing the Mary Tyler Moore show in the 70s, winning multiple Oscars for Terms of Endearment. But the thing we haven't talked about yet is the thing that I know James L. Brooks from the best. And if you're of a certain age, you too. Talking about The Simpsons. If you don't know, James L. Brooks is the producer who helped Matt Groening turn his drawings into the show that would eventually become The Simpsons. The characters first started out as a special segment on The Tracy Ullman Show, which was like a sketch comedy variety show. But he saw something in these little animated clips and I asked him about those early days. Matt was coming to see me because we were doing the Tracy Ullman show for the new Fox network, which was only on a handful of stations. It was an experiment that that was expected to fail. Uh, For a couple of years, bankruptcy was a real possibility. It was in that climate that we were able to to get on the air, thanks to to Barry Diller. So, so we were doing, we were doing, Matt was doing these short pieces as interstitials in the Tracy Ullman show because the audience would come in. Tracy would take so long to get prosthetics, which was a big part of her assuming wildly different characters that the, that we'd have to replace audience. They were exhausted. It would take us three and a half hours to do a 20 minute show. And we started as we built up a, a backlog of, we started showing the Simpson pieces to the audience while they waited. And, and they were going over like crazy. Meet Bart, Lisa, their little sister Maggie. Mom, 
and Dan. <laughs> it's The Simpsons, and you'll only find them on The Tracy Ullman Show tonight. This is all Matt Groening. Matt Groening was doing them all by himself. David Silkman had it, who's still with us, you know, was, he was drawing them and, and Matt was doing them. And then they they came to us to suggest that we do it as a special and see if it worked to do a half hour show. And we said we wanted to do it as a half hour show. If they didn't let us, we would go elsewhere. It might resemble the Simpsons. It might be called something else. We might get sued. But that was what our intention was, with Matt, of course, to, to just keep doing it. And they did it. And it's, you know, amazing. Woohoo! I'm a college man. I won't need my high school diploma anymore. I am so smart. I am so smart. S-M-R-T. I mean, S-M-A-R-T. I mean, I've heard people um, talk a little bit about, I'm a, I'm a big nerd on The Simpsons. I've read every book about The Simpsons. I watched The Simpsons. I'm one of those, you're looking at one of those people. I can see your eyes sort of like darken as you realize I'm one of those people. So I've heard of saying you're a deeply intelligent guy who has a great... Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate <laughs> it. The, the thing that I've heard is that the people are often asked, what's the difference between The Simpsons and the other sort of like cartoons of of the time. And the answer I've heard over and over and over again, and I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about this, is that you came in and you said, this can't be a cartoon. This has to be a real family, and there needs to be heart at the core of this show. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? It became our collective mission statement. And, and what we had been doing before then, the live action television shows we were doing, that's what we fought for on those shows. It was consistent with doing the Mary Tyler Moore show or Luke Grant or Taxi. It was consistent with whatever that ethos is. And that's what we did. And that's what we still try to be doing. I think Bart and Lisa are feeling a little upset right now. Isn't there something you'd like to say? There sure is. Kids, you tried your best and you failed miserably. The lesson is never try. You you went in and you were like, hey, guys, if we're going to make this show with these cartoon characters, they have to be a real family. They do they do need to really love each other, and there needs to be some heart, heart in this yeah. thing. And that was our rhetoric at the time. If you look at the early ones, it looks like, you know, th- those early Mickey Mouse ones, <laughs> like Steamboat Will and Mickey. But that was what, what our, that's what, what we were saying. Meanwhile, we were doing something that's much less in service of what you just said. I think that we did say it to each other. We did say it's important. And I think as we went along, it became more and more achievable for us. Why why do you think the show's lasted so long? Well, first of all, it's drawn. Actors aren't aging, you know? (laughs) I don't think it would happen any other way. I don't know if I was expecting that literal an answer from James L. Brooks. Why do you think The Simpsons has lasted so long? I thought it would be, oh, well, you know, like the strength of the stories or like, you know, the, the love of those characters. But it's like, no, because it's an animated show, the characters don't age, so you can keep it on the air forever. Love how practical James L. Brooks is. That's the first part of my conversation with James. Uh, he's the producer behind shows like 
Mary Tyler Moore, Taxi, and The Simpsons. So coming up on the show, you're going to hear, I find a lot with these, these like really successful producer types who start out as writers, they're still writers more than anything. Like I feel the same way. Like I've, I've got to meet a couple of like tech CEOs and even though they're tech CEOs and they have like a, a house made of solid gold or something like that, you know, in a pool made of liquid solid gold. Anyway, I find that when I ask them what they do for a living, they always say like, I'm a programmer. They won't, you know, there's something in them about that. James L. Brooks is the same way. And coming up on the show, he's going to talk a little bit about why he thinks writer's rooms are so sacred. More Q after this. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. You know, the writing is what writing always is. Humbling, you want to kill yourself some days, you feel great other days, you know, it's, it's, it's that. But directing, part of you must give it a chance to live and fight for a chance to live. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the Oscar-winning writer, director, and producer, James L. Brooks. He's the producer who helped create The Simpsons and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. He's made movies like Broadcast News and Terms of Endearment. But James's latest producing project is the film adaptation of Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. It makes sense James L. Brooks is adapting the work of a famous writer because the title of all the things I just mentioned to you, producer and luminary and legend, the thing that James L. Brooks identifies the most with is writer. I mean, this guy is decades into his career. I mean, he, he probably has more money than the Pope, and he still shows up to the Simpsons writer's room. And in TV lore, there are people who say the way he wrote sitcoms with realism and heart changed the direction of TV forever. I mean, there wouldn't be a Friends without his influence. There wouldn't be The Office without his influence. And he came up at a time when it was immediately assumed that sitcom writers would be getting their scripts reviewed by the network and advertisers, and James pushed back on that. And that early attitude and that respect for writers paved the way for The Simpsons. Here's more of our conversation. I've also heard that, um, I mean, Conan O'Brien has talked about this, that it's a writer's dream to work there. And the things I've read have said that you really set up the show. Mike, Mike Scully, one of the executive producers of The Simpsons, said this, that the show is successful because you set it up to be a writer's dream with no interference from the network or executives. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? You know, there's a, there's a way to be spoiled that's, uh, that's dangerously great. When we did the Mary Tyler Moore show, it started with, um, with the network coming to the meetings, There'd be notes. There'd be several of them. As time went on, advertisers would come and have notes. Early on in Mary Tyler Moore, with success, we were able to say, we'd, we'd like not to submit our story outlines for comments anymore. And they said, okay. So suddenly the table was a lot smaller <laughs> and it was us. And that's the way it's been. So I think, I think we, we got 
blessedly spoiled in a great way. But like respect for writers seems to be a, a theme throughout your career. Yeah. And, and there's a difference in I hope they like it to I hope I like it, you know? There's a difference between I hope they like it and I hope I like it? Yeah. In other words, if you're, if you're having the network, who could, they have, if they don't like it, they, you, you know, you're rewriting and rewriting and rewriting until they say they do like it and, and doing it until you feel that way. Oh yeah, that's that's kind of that's 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 much much nicer. I mean, and speaking of like heart and 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 all that, you recently produced a film adaptation of Judy Bloom's "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret." If you want to get out of those small bras, you're going to have to do the same exercise and technique I do. There's an exercise? Of course there is. You hold your arms out like this, and you say, "I must, I must, I must increase my bust. I, I must, I must increase my bust. Chin up. We must, we must." Producers have been trying to adapt that book for 50 years. My understanding is that you and, and your producer flew to Florida to convince Judy to let you, you do it. Why were you so set on first, making that happen? Go ahead. First things first, Kelly Freeman Craig, who, who, mm-hmm. um, who did Edge of 17 and, 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 you know, was producer on that. She wrote to Judy because she said, this is what I want to do next. And Judy wrote back how much she liked Edge of 17. And then we got on a plane. You know, so it's it's Kelly who deserves the credit. How did you talk her into it? Judy? Yeah. First of all, Judy Bloom is exactly like you hope Judy Bloom is. I mean, if you if you have a if you have a sweet disposition and a really nice imagination, you would say, I'd like Judy Bloom to be like this. You walk in the door and that's what she's like. She's gracious, she's smart, she's she's accessible. Um, I was tongue-tied around her, and her husband, George, who's a great guy, was sitting with his back to us and doing something else in the corner of the room. And I was so tongue-tied that I was bombing, you know? And I, you know, and we were fumping around, and I, and I, and I just, I just wanted to, I, what, not wanted to, I was communicating the responsibility I felt about it, because it was, like, considerable to do this thing. It was humble to even pitch her in my, in my experience so that I was a, a little tongue-tied and I was, in my own mind, really bombing seriously. You know, not quite finishing sentences and she's smiling at me, not quite making the point I wanted to make. And then as I, we were taking some, a breather of some sort and her husband turned around and said, we're doing this, aren't we? And then everybody was hugging everybody. <laughs> so he sort of, he sort of called it. Yeah, yeah. Why was it so important for you? Why, why did you want to make this film? Well, you know, we have a little company called Gracie Films. And what we do is, is you know, there are writers that we give total support to and trying to give them as much control of their own work as we possibly can. And that's why, because Kelly Freeman Craig was that writer, uh, is that writer, you know, she's... Uh, and, and they invariably direct for the first time their own material. And invariably it works. You know, the batting average for writers who become directors is, is, is pretty damn good. Things are obviously really different now than when you started out in TV. I mean, you were telling me a little bit just then about there were 20, 30 million people watching, you know, Taxi and, and Mary Tyler Moore and All in the Family. Did I, did I tell you the Grant Tinker quote, which I always think of? He, he, he used to say to us, do you realize you could take a plane from Los Angeles to New York on a Saturday night, jump out and very likely land on somebody watching your show? Very, very different now, Jim. Very different. What still excites you about TV and film now, even though things are so different? Um, 
Disney Plus was great for us. It was an amazing thing to come along as far as The Simpsons is concerned, where there actually are people. We have 700 some odd shows and there are people who start watching them all. There are people who start watching them all when they're 12. Maybe by the time they're 15, they finish or something. And, and it's just been it's just the, the most radical change that happened happens to have been a wonderful thing for The Simpsons. I, I hear you, and you're, I hear your analytics there. I hear that, like, it's been really good for the show, and I get it. Like, it's really good for the industry. It's really good for the show. Where but did I'm, I let you down? <laughs> I'm not going to get to talk to you again, I don't think. So just in case I don't, yeah, I want to know what it is that you love about making TV and film, man. Like, that's, that's what I'm oh, curious the Simpsons, about. The Simpsons, what I love is service. What I love is the Simpsons are bigger than us, and we and we all just try and serve that thing up there, which we get to work for. I mean, that's 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 it. And um, and then I feel, you know, I feel uh, like you know, the writing is what writing always is: humbling. You want to kill yourself some days. You feel great other days. You know, it's it's, it's that. But directing and producing is, you know, which I did a script that, that we're now in the process of just be, you know, we're just about a month from filming it. And that's and that's that the, the something happens where you just you spend so much time writing it and part of you must give it a chance to live and fight for a chance to live. With me, it's usually starts with the characters. There's relationships that are built up and they're still born unless you get somebody to make it. I can I can hear I can hear the passion in you, man. Listen, you, you've made some of the things that have meant the most to me growing up in my life, man. So thanks. Thanks a lot for it. And, and thanks a lot for making the time to talk to us today. Are you in Toronto? I'm in Toronto. Okay. Very good meeting you. Oh, lovely to meet you too, man. Are you yeah. ever in Toronto? I, uh, yeah. Debbie wants a while for a tip, man. Well, dr- drop by. Okay. Say hello. Okay. You got it. I'll be candid with you because I try to be a little bit more candid in these podcast extras than I, than I am on the, on the radio show. Um, I didn't really know what to expect with James L. Brooks, you know, I wouldn't say the most sentimental man I've ever met in my life, but in some ways, isn't that preferable? Isn't that preferable to talk to someone who's just done amazing things and in his 80s is not feeling incredibly reflective because why would he be? He just wants to continue making amazing things. It didn't feel like false humility. It felt like I just want to keep working because why Why wouldn't I? What a joy to talk to someone like that. Just, I mean, just that, that voice you were just listening to, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It has like shaped so much of popular culture. Like I wonder how much, how different we are because of shows like Taxi and Mary Taylor Moore and, and, and The Simpsons. Anyway, what a joy to talk to James L. Brooks. Thanks to him for, for making the time. Uh, the other conversation up on our podcast feed today, did you have that room in your house that you weren't allowed to go in? Do you know what I mean by that? Like... The room where there was like maybe plastic on the furniture or the room where the Christmas tree went or something like that. Um, Michael McMillan is a British artist. He's been studying and thinking a lot about what front rooms, especially in Caribbean immigrant families, what front rooms represent about class, ambition, authenticity, and respectability. If you have a living room or have had a living room, Sounds like I'm doing a lawyer thing. Like, if you have ever had a living room or, you know, or want to have a living room, go check out that conversation. We'll see you soon. Later on.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.